Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And today we're talking about... Well, it's a book review, I suppose, today. Um, Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about, I suppose, one of the the sort of seminal works, um, at least historical seminal works if you like by margaret thaler singer cults in our midst the continuing fight against their hidden menace um so that's the book um i got it over christmas i think Mm. was she someone that was in a cult herself um no no she was a a therapist she was at well actually a clinical psychologist i should say Mm. um so she was obviously helping people who were victims of cults so she Mm -hmm. describes different types of victims in society um and she describes people in cults as being a particular subsection if you like of of these victims Mm. so victims of um thought control ways of sort of manipulating them and leading them to do things that um, were not in their interests, essentially. Mm. So, yeah, so that that was her background. She was a clinical psychologist. She worked also in, um, so she helped people, she counseled people, but she also worked with courts um, as an expert cult witness. Um, She had a couple of run-ins as well with a few of these groups who didn't like what she said about them um and yeah she she was the at the wrong end of a couple of lawsuits i do believe mm. so yeah so she's fairly controversial um among some quarters but um, controversial quite... against court uh, against cults though mm. yeah i mean there, there has been a fairly long-running dispute between um i suppose in the main psychologists and again a subsection of psychologists who tend to be clinical psychologists or therapists um who are very anti-cult and another group of social scientists tends to be more social scientists or sociologists who are a bit more skeptical of how how damaging cults are and they just see what's happening within a group as being Essentially, these are normal social interactions and that people go into cults voluntarily and lots of them leave. So kind of, unless there's bad things happening in the cult itself, the, the question is, what's the problem? Uh, I'm not saying I, I take that stance, but that's no. that's what um I think the problem is most of say. them end up being bad. <laughs> and the reason we call them cults is to attribute that. Yeah, so it's a way of, it's a kind of, well, it's seen as a pejorative term, although Singer doesn't like that. She she 
argues that we shouldn't see the word cult as a pejorative meaning it um you know sort of like a like a slur or an accusation mm. it's a it's a particular type of organization as far as she's concerned that does some specific things that essentially controls people's thinking and behavior mm. um so she rejects the idea that they are just like other organizations um I think the reason I take it as a pejorative is because anything that's trying to control how you think and feel or do is bad, in my opinion. I mean, everything's trying to control you. I guess you could say like, oh, marketing is and this and that. But like, you know, when we think in terms of cults and their ways of controlling, I think that's generally bad being controlled to, to believe certain things and do certain things. So that's why I kind of take it that way. But I in in a in the way that I find it, it's useful as a term and it's useful for us to have that attachment towards it because it means that like when it is mentioned we kind of know what we mean as a general use of the term we know what someone means when they say it's a cult we know it means controlling in a bad way I, I guess so although I would if I could I'd get rid of the word tomorrow if I'm honest um but mm. i think it's impossible to get rid of it now because it's as you say it is it is the way that we describe a constellation of different characteristics but i think it has so many problems with it um so i, I suppose that the naming itself is reflective of this this argument i guess between the sociologist and the psychologist um so you may have heard new religious movement used as a term Mm. so in a lot of the research that i did for my masters this term nrms kept cropping up um, when talking about groups so nrms was seen as a more i suppose less pejorative and i guess politically correct term um, Mm. to describe groups that others would call cults so jehovah's witnesses mormons these sorts of groups are described in a lot of the literature as new religious movements as opposed to cults. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem I have with that is that nobody actually minds that they're new or not. Mm. <laughs> At least I don't care whether they're new or not. That's not the problem. The problem is, what do they do? And that's why I prefer the term high control group or high control organization, because that's actually descriptive and it's very mm-hmm. clear. Mm-hmm. Um And that's why I'm not so keen on the word cult, because it isn't really descriptive. It's just a label that you then have to go on to explain what that means. Mm -hmm. So I prefer high control group because that that tells you what it is. Yeah. Um, But anyway, that's I don't think that's ever going to catch on as well as cults does. So we're kind of stuck with it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So I do use the term. I try wherever I can to refer to these groups as high control groups because that's actually what they're doing mm. um anyway that's i don't think that's a, the major mm-hmm. kind of question on our minds but i think it is something maybe to uh, to just keep in mind okay so when was this book written then yeah so the book was um the, the book was written in the 90s and um there's been a, a couple of editions to reviews or edited editions of this with a bit extra on the end so the book's getting bigger as Mm. as new cults came along 
she added to the book to talk about is some of the she, latest things. Is she still with us? Or no, no, she's passed away. Um, okay. She died. I, off the top of my head, I can't tell you when she died, but no, she died a few years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I suppose it's worth thinking about what's happening at the time. So she wrote this originally in the 90s. Um, so she would have been experiencing or, or she would have been seeing people that had belong to groups perhaps from the hippie era if you like um so a lot of these kind of dropout communes um and then of course there were some big um terrible instances of things like the jim jones heaven's gate um the manson family which was essentially described as a cult um mm-hmm. and there were a number of these groups that kind of cropped up were either just very weird to people's eyes or frightening um, or, you know, were actually dangerous. They, people died as a result of them. Um, and there seemed to be a lot of these groups that sprung up all at the same time. So that's kind of the cultural background. That's that's when she wrote this book. But of course, at this point, she hadn't, we hadn't seen a lot of the things that came after that. Yeah. Um, so... It is within its, I think it's important to remember, it is within its context. Do you want to talk about the value? Yeah, so I think I think some of the the value is in, in thinking about what, I suppose we, we could talk about the definition of cults here and mm-hmm. the difficulty of identifying what we mean by that term. There's actually quite a nice little table in the book. That you love a table. I do like a table. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's on page 58, and it's called The Continuum of Influence and Persuasion. So I think one of the most sensible things that she talks about is the fact that um, we're influenced all the time. So actually what we're seeing here is what you might describe as a spectrum, or I'd call it a dimension, mm-hmm. on which cults are kind of at one extreme. Um, and... And she goes from education through to advertising, through propaganda, through indoctrination, and finally thought reform. So if you can imagine a a kind of line with education at one end, which is benign, Mm. through to thought reform or brainwashing, it's sometimes called, at the other end. And in between, you've got advertising, propaganda, and indoctrination so it's quite a big table so i won't go through it all but what i did start to do is i went through it and i looked i thought about my own upbringing and my own experience in jehovah's witnesses to think well which whereabouts would i place this um so let i'll give you a couple of examples um so structure of persuasion is one of the examples so structure of persuasion. Yep. So at one end, we've got education. And here it says that the education, the teacher or uses teacher-pupil structure. So in other words, you've got a teacher, you've got a pupil. Mm-hmm. And logical thinking is encouraged. So that's the education model. Advertising, which is another ramp up of the influence, I suppose, mm-hmm. is uses an instructional mode to persuade consumers or the Mm. buyer 
Next level up from that is propaganda. Mm-hmm. That takes an authoritarian stance to persuade the masses. So you must do this. You must mm-hmm. believe this. Next level is indoctrination. Again, takes an authoritarian and hierarchical stance. So you've got levels of, I suppose, authority there. And then thought reform at the end takes authoritarian and hierarchical stance, no full awareness on the part of the learner. So Mm. in other words, don't think, just do what you're told. So that's kind of the, the, uh, the spectrum when it comes to persuasion. Yeah. And so the question is, well, where, where did my um, group sit oh, on that? I would put them at the far end. Takes an authoritarian and hierarchical stance, no full awareness on the part of the learner. So I would either, I would sort of straddle indoctrination and thought reform. Because yeah. I think people did, they were encouraged to use their thinking faculties to mm. understand things like the 70 weeks of years and and the Daniel prophecy, the 2,500... As long as they've thought about it in the right way. Oh, of course. It's very manipulative, but I think they they do want people to understand it again with scare quotes. Um, So I personally would call it indoctrination. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that's a particularly good thing? Indoctrination verging on. I'll give you one more. It would depend as well on your congregation leaders, I think, um, which end you straddle more. Absolutely. Of those two. So here's another one. Tolerance. So tolerance. Um, Education. Respects difference. Uh, Advertising. Puts down the competition. Mm -hmm. So it's not tolerant of the competition. Propaganda. Wants to lessen opposition. So they try to get rid of the opposition. Uh, Indoctrination. Aware of differences. But they'll probably denigrate the differences Mm -hmm. and thought reform is no respect for differences at all Mm. so i would say jw's fit in that end category no respect yeah they don't respect difference no well no because like things like you know um just the way you dress is uh told to you and there's no room for difference there you know absolutely yeah absolutely so I think looking through them, well, I won't, obviously won't go through them all now, but looking through them all, I felt that there was a, a kind of straddling of most of the, the indoctrination and thought reforms. But it, it finding wasn't... finding it interesting, yeah. It, yeah, it wasn't all like the most extreme. Mm-hmm. But you could imagine some groups would literally like fit Like we said, in that different form. congregations, I think, could easily Maybe. fall into the furthest end. Because yeah. that's the thing with... It's not like all cults are the same where there's one cult hub and everybody in the cult is there, you know, yeah. or high control group, if you will, um, like Jehovah's Witnesses. They're a large organization spread across many parts. They're separate cells acting individually, aren't they? So That's right. I mean, they do, they do have, we've talked about this before, they do have quite a strong grip on yeah. those organizations. But I think you, you, you can identify some groups and it does depend on the body of elders essentially how head banging they are really some Mm -hmm. of them are incredibly head banging and some are are Mm -hmm. not so bad you know Mm -hmm. um so yeah i I think 
you're right. I think you're right. That will differ from congregation to congregation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's quite a, quite a good part of the book. I think that's, that's quite interesting and it does mm-hmm. allow you to consider. Um, but of course, again, you're, this isn't a scientific way of doing it. You're really just trying to place people into a, or groups into a category based around quite a small amount of information. I mean, my experience in a, in a group is obviously augmented by talking to other people. Um, but it's still only quite limited. So you, you know, you're left with your own opinion, essentially your own way of thinking about it. Um, one of the areas that she talks about, which I, um, I have a problem with generally when we're talking about groups and we, we actually alluded to this when we talked to Lloyd the other day was this whole way that we see identity and self. I personally feel there is a too simplistic way of thinking about identity so Singer talks about a pseudo personality mm-hmm. um, that is not your own personality, but is essentially the cult personality that is superimposed upon the genuine or authentic personality or, or self. Um, and of course, there is some truth in that because, in fact, there is a scripture in the Bible that we were told a lot was to strip off the old personality at least in the new world translation strip off the old personality and put on the new personality so it's almost like you know you couldn't you couldn't write a better admonition or admission that that's what we're doing you know yeah so when you become a witness you need to put away the old person and become a new person in christ Mm. um and lots of groups try to change people's thinking and behavior so if you're thinking about personality in terms of behavior then okay i can i can buy that Mm -hmm. if you're thinking about identity on the other hand or a sense of self that's a slightly different thing and i i worry a little bit about this narrative about the cult self versus the real self. Mm. Um, and I worry about it for a couple of reasons. One is that it it creates a break mm-hmm. for the individual who's trying to leave. It's almost, it could feel like for the person that's involved that I don't actually know who I am at all and I need to completely build from scratch a self. Um, and that could feel very yeah. daunting. Well, a lot of the people we spoke to on the Sunday interview have said about like a having a bit of a, a breakdown mm. post leaving, and I wonder yeah. if that's because yeah, everyone's telling you that you don't have a personhood anymore. <laughs> like the, it, it, the place you've left is telling you that, and the people that yeah you go to for support are also telling you that. Like these books, because obviously there are a lot of them mm. are written for people that go in and come out not that's people right. that were born in yeah i suppose and that's that's where i'm coming from i'm i'm coming particularly from the perspective of somebody that was born into one of these groups and then uh when you leave and i'm not denying that there is a period of of self-discovery um and it can be incredibly painful it mm. was for me and yeah i, I questioned everything about myself really and again we've talked to many 
on the Sunday interviews that I've talked about some of those same things and it, it's terrifying. It's um, you feel there's been lots of great metaphors that people have used to explain how that felt. But um, I think for me, when I look back, I, I see a person that has developed and grown mm. I don't think that I became a completely brand new person when I left. I think I grew. Mm. And so that allows me to tell a story about who I am and who I was and that development over the years. And sure, there were periods of big development, huge steps that I had to take after I left Jehovah's Witnesses. But I still feel that I am still Stephen I'm still the same person. You're always developing. You're you're always learning new things and you're adjusting to those things and so on. And I, I feel that that's a more, for me, perhaps a slightly more useful way of thinking, especially if you are somebody who was born in and it reflects much more what we really think and what we, we think we know about identity. It is a story. It is a way of describing ourselves. And... I think it's important to be able to incorporate that thing that happened to us and who we were into our self that we now have. I have to stress that I am not a counsellor. And so, you know, you can shoot me down and explain well, to me why Well, everyone's experience is individual. Wrong. You know, I don't yeah. think it's necessarily right or wrong. That's just what's worked for you, you know. Yeah, and obviously I come to it from a particular position, but I'm also applying some of the psychological theory that we have talked about on this podcast before around self and that it isn't just this kind of unitary thing that you can easily describe. Yeah. It's a complicated constellation of think thinking, thoughts, feelings, emotions, experiences. We string all that together and make sense of it, and it's that activity that we're doing that mm -hmm. essentially generates our feeling of this is who I am um, and from the bits of research that I've seen around people that have had uh, moments in their lives of big change or transformation the ability to incorporate their story into past present and future is quite an important part of what helped them to get through that yeah um, so while it might be useful to think about this in those terms, if you have been recruited into mm -hmm. a group, it's superimposed upon you, this pseudo personality, and your mission now is to get back to the one that you had before. Okay, that might be useful for that situation, but I don't feel it's particularly useful for me as somebody who uh, grew up in that, that group, you know, an extreme, I'm not saying this is this is taking an extreme way of looking at it, but an extreme way of looking at that would be that I have to basically say that everything that I was before, before I left, I don't want anything to do with anymore. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's, that's, I guess nobody is actually saying that, but if you're not careful, that's how it can sound mm. when we talk about, pseudo personalities and um a cult self and so on so and, and again it might be 
that maybe the problem here is that we are talking about many different things, mm-hmm. which I guess leads on to the discussion around hypnosis and some of the methods, the techniques that the book talks about. So um, Singer identifies things like hypnosis, um, repetitive chanting, hyperventilation, repetitive motions. These are all ways to basically get people into a certain mental state that leaves their mind open to the new self that is being Mm. imposed upon the individual. Um, I just don't feel that I experienced that. No, I suppose uh, the interesting thing maybe is that when you first left, you, for a long, long time, many years, you didn't tell people that you'd been a witness and you Mm. kind of hid that past Mm. um, until more recently when you've i don't know come out as an ex-witness um yeah well it feels a bit like that yeah yeah so i guess you kind of packaged that away for a while um yeah and i don't think it was particularly healthy i mean i guess we're going back to the the point before Mm -hmm. but i i felt i feel now that i'm much more at ease with myself because i can explain who i am Mm-hmm. based on my history yeah. you know so when i when i tried to hide the fact that i'd been brought up with this set these sets of beliefs mm-hmm. um i guess i felt the like a bit chunk of an of anomaly disappearing yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, this is a weird guy you know he's got these mm. he's got this set of behaviors and these ways of thinking and so on and even if mm. your way of thinking and behaviors is a direct um kind of antidote of what you were that there's still that's the reason you know what i mean yeah yeah so to deny that that ever happened in a way is is not particularly healthy but i I didn't want to dwell on it but i think it's been for me it's been useful to so yeah that's that's why i i kind of i'm very careful to do this or i um yeah for a big part of my life i did that that would perhaps help explain why I behave this way now. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, for me, It's that's been useful for yeah. me to be able to do that. But I didn't, I didn't experience um, hypnosis. In fact, that was a big no-no. Jehovah's Witness is not allowed to, to have hypnosis. Devil in, you? Absolutely. It's not like allowed yoga. to do yoga. Exactly. Um, there was no chanting I mean, the Kingdom songs are very mild and most people don't sing them much. Mm, absolute sort of, bops, you know. They kind of mumble their way through them. Mm. Prayers are just what somebody standing up, yeah, talking. Or mentally, you just do them in your little head. Exactly. So it's not, I just don't see that. And okay, so maybe that's one thing that isn't part of a of that particular group but Mm. you're left with a little bit of a problem I think and one of the things that um, I guess I felt coming out of reading this book and and actually what what really got me thinking about how we describe these groups and one of the things that really hit me was when she started to talk 
So Singer talks about Caldini's six tactics of compliance here, Mm -hmm. which you're familiar with, Celine. Yeah, well, interestingly, I'm not going to say where, but at my um, day job, I did had to do some um, study on it. Well, not study. We do training videos, and this was one of them. It was part of it. It seemed quite old, I would say. That it was, you could tell it was from an old training program, but it was on there um, yeah. as to how to sell. <laughs> so I work in sales. Yeah. These are these are six tactics for compliance. I believe there's a new edition, so I think he's still alive. He's just released mm. a new a new edition. Um, and maybe we we bought the new edition. Who's to say? <laughs> and, and Caldini comes up with six tactics for getting compliance out of somebody and Singer identifies these as being important ways that many of these groups or many of the things they do to get people in Mm. or get them to do what they're telling them to do so one is consistency Um, so keep on saying the same thing over and over again Uh, reciprocity Um, in other words you know you do something for them and they're most likely to want to reciprocate Mm -hmm. social proof so you bring in you know, old brother and sister such and such who have been this thing for many years mm. and are happier now than they've ever been. Um, authority, so you create a, a structure where you've got somebody that is an authority and they are respected. Um, liking, so you're more likely to buy from somebody that likes you. Um, mm-hmm. And scarcity, so creates a, a feeling that this could end any minute. You know, mm. Armageddon could come tomorrow, and you've lost your chance. You know, so you can see how the sales these... going to end. Exactly, yeah, the sales going to end. Um, we're running out of stock. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't leave it until tomorrow if I was you. Mm. So it's these sort of tactics, and these are used in sales. These are used legitimately, I guess, in in some sorts of mm-hmm. areas. Um, but of course, they it's can be clinching. used. <laughs> is it mm. they, they can be used of course to get people to do things in cults or groups like this um, and this leads me to think that actually what is happening in a lot of cults is that these things are essentially a lot of them are contracts mm-hmm. and if you're looking so, just to clarify con tricks not all, all one word like con and then tricks because at first that's what i thought you meant earlier that's what, not a con trick. Con no trick. It just thought you were saying some sort of like psychology word that you presumed oh, sorry, everyone right, knew. Okay. Yeah, a con <laughs> a trick. Con. Confidence <laughs> yeah. trick. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a way of parting somebody with their money or their labour or mm. something else that is wanted by an individual or individuals. Um, and so Singer was uh, very active in um, you know, helping people to take cases against some of these groups for money that they'd stolen from them or conned them out of. Um, And I would suggest, why don't we just call them what they are? Mm. They're con artists. Mm. Mm. I'd like to say that, obviously, yeah, it's used in, um, like I said, in sales and stuff. I think when you're going to a place to buy something, it's fair game. Like It's expected that they're going to try and sell you the thing. You go in wanting to buy a thing, they want to sell you a thing it's like accepted that's fine i wouldn't that's not a con i don't think you're being conned you're going to a place to buy a thing and they want you to buy the thing that's the whole point i think that's not a con that's just the way that selling I agree. and the shop I agree. works it's when these yeah. things are being used under um dodgy circumstances you didn't yeah. know you were going into yeah. to buy a thing 
let's say you didn't know you were going into to join a religion yeah do you know what i mean like these yeah. it's the way they're used it's underhand use of them that i think is when you should be concerned i don't think you should be worried if you can tell that um the retail assistant is using reciprocity or you know they're telling you the sale will end soon i don't think that's scammy or dodgy that's just the way that we know these things work yeah absolutely um and and that's that's where our continuum comes in so Mm -hmm. um deceptiveness is one of the um Mm -hmm. elements on that continuum so education is not deceptive advertising can be deceptive selecting only positive views Mm -hmm. i mean i would get i would say that's the same for we talked about this when you know we're looking at unis for you you know nobody on the on the uni prospectus says you know you should be aware that your uh, your digs are going to be two miles away from the actual yeah, thing. yeah. you know nobody's going to put that up front are they and say no. that's the way it is you'll have um, to walk half an hour every day to exactly. get and you don't actually live on campus when you live in london exactly. just so you know yeah you no one in london there's like one halls where you live five minutes away and everyone is like it's coveted halls. <laughs> I mean, when I when I went um, for a, for the um, open day for my uh, second uni, they you came with me actually on that day. Yeah. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. And um, the place that they did it was absolutely beautiful. It was a gorgeous mm. building. Um, you never saw, saw that building never again. Saw that again. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> In fact, on the first day I went. I went into that building and I said, um, you know, can you tell me the way to such and such? And they had not a clue what I was talking about. Mm. I didn't even know. <laughs> so it was like, I mean, it was still on the same complex, but it was not actually part of their uni mm. or not their college anyway. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but so I think it is typical of advertising and so on. There is often a bit of omission, if you like, mm. um, but yes, it, there's degrees, and I think that is obviously where we're, what we're talking about. So it, it's got me thinking about maybe how we categorise these groups. And again, this I suppose goes back to the original discussion about whether we should call groups cults or high control groups or whatever. And it got me thinking about how different these are. You know, my experience as a Jehovah's Witness. I didn't experience some of these things, but I did others Mm. and there'll be, you know, a big variation. Maybe there's like a, a a deeper level of taxonomy. You know how we categorize animals in terms of lots of different ways of describing them. It feels like with cults, you know, okay, we might have this umbrella term cult, but then there's lots of different, types of cults and maybe we can group those together a little bit maybe there's a whole Mm. taxonomy there of trying to group certain groups together and certain types of cult Um, and this work has been done to some degree but it's often done in relation to the subject matter so we hear about ufo cults Mm. or um, health cults or psychotherapy cults or religious cults so that's one way of categorizing them but maybe there's a more useful way which is Mm. looking at the specific methods they deploy and maybe even the intentions of the people who are running these cults or starting these groups so that's kind of my thinking on this 
this is by no means a um, fully formed theory yet. It's still very, very early days. I'm really just thinking out loud at the moment. And mm. so I do need to do some more work on it. But do you want to hear where I've got to so far in trying to categorize these groups in a slightly yeah, different way? Yeah, go for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I've so far, I've come up with five d- types, if you like. Mm. We could call them cult types, if you like. So one group I would describe as the contric. I think there are groups out there, and this perhaps sits better with MLMs, multi-level marketing groups, or you know, sales type marketing mm-hmm. groups that that fit all a lot of these cult aspects, but are basically a contract. You know, give us your money up front, and you'll be able to do X, Y, Z. So some of these py- pyramid schemes, um, the way that they get people involved. They're manipulative, they're lying, they're um, not giving you the full information. Essentially, it's a contract. Mm. Um, So that's one particular group, I think. And then I've called the second one disorganized abusive. Um, So I think that is often perhaps in a family situation or a, a small group where you've got an individual who is perhaps abusive, maybe physically, sexually abusive to their partner or to their family or to a little group that um, maybe they've happened to get around them. There was a case in, in like the UK. Like communes and things like that, like smaller yeah, groups. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, smaller groups with no kind of, no theology or, or philosophy particularly. It's just about the individual Mm-hmm. dominating and coercively controlling the people in their family. And I would suggest most of those types of groups are literally just families. Mm. And when I say just, I, I mean it's the family. And often the the abuser, I've called it disorganized because they're not they're not sitting thinking it through. They're mm-hmm. just behaving um aggressively. They are controlling what their partner does i mean the classic example is the the man who won't let their partner go out and socialize Mm -hmm. and they read their text messages and they tell them who they can see and who their friends are and all of that um i mean that has a lot of the the characteristics of a cult um but that's i think it's particularly own thing it's Mm -hmm. a disorganized abusive relationship where i suppose most often it would be the man but not always but the man or the the abuser is um, quite effective, very effective at controlling the partner or the others in that household. But they're not bright enough to do it in a kind of calculated way. Mm. Maybe there's abuse. There's there could be alcoholic um, alcohol abuse or drug abuse or whatever that's part of that as well. So I think that so could there's be that one. Yep. To that one. Um, and then I think there's also the organized abusive relationship, which is where a lot of the same things are happening, but the abuser is, I suppose, maybe a psychopath. They actually know what they're doing and they know how to control the individual or the individuals. And they are mm. basically, they're controlling them, coercively controlling them in a very calculating way to get what they want out of them. So I've called that organized abusive. Um, 
And then I think we've got the deluded charismatic group. So the deluded charismatic is the one that is, I think, what most people think of when they think about cults. They think about the guy with the Jesus complex who thinks he's the second Messiah, who really believes that he is. Mm. And he's got this group around him that, you know, pander to his every whim because he's going to save them when the end comes, you know. And Mm -hmm. I think there could be some mental illness there on the case of the individual because they are deluded. They believe they are an incarnation of God or something. Um, And finally, we've got the earnest deluded, which is, I would suggest, where groups... Yeah, this is where I think groups like Jehovah's Witnesses might come in. These are, for the most part, believers. Mm. They have a belief system that, within its own logic you know, has a structure to it. Whether it makes sense Mm. is a different question. And I think people actually believe this. And maybe maybe you get, first of all, you get a deluded charismatic group, which then, if it's around long enough, becomes an earnest deluded group. Mm. Um, And I would suggest maybe that's groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, where it started with a quite a charismatic person who was quite intelligent and he came mm. up with these uh, these ideas and he, he got a few people around him but then after time the the original charismatic leader's gone and then you're left with this this organization which has grown from him full of earnest but deluded people yeah. believing this to be the truth mm-hmm. um, that's not to say that some of the upper echelons aren't crooked and I have no idea whether they are or not but could be mm-hmm. but it also could be that they're not they actually do believe the whole belief system so they're the five the contract, the disorganised abusive, the organised abusive the deluded charismatic and the earnest deluded that's kind of what I got out of the book yeah it got you thinking it's uh, again i would recommend reading it because i do think it's important to get a, a wide range of knowledge it's called cults in our midst uh, by margaret thaler singer lovely okay well thank you very much celine thank you for listening to me rabbit on about that um don't forget everybody to leave a review <laughs> do a review it's really really helpful um obviously that's for our apple listeners do a yeah. do the stars right even something that literally just says it was good um, would be great. It just helps yeah. push it up on the algorithm, gets more people it seeing it. Absolutely. So please do that. And um, thank uh, yeah. you again for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. Bye.